0: What kind of a
1: show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
2: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting.
3: I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson.
4: What are you doing? In there. Perfect. This is the circle of sadness. Your job is to make sure that all the sadness stays inside of it so you want me to just stand here hey it's not my place to tell you how to do your job
3: circle of sadness wasn't that your number one movie of 2014 adam i'm pretty sure that was scott tobias's pick this week on the show
2: we'll get to our number one films of 2015 as we continue our top 10 films of the year countdown with guest scott circle of sadness tobias and the chicago tribune's michael phillips pixar's
3: inside out going to make the cut josh didn't show up on anyone's list last week. Could it sneak into someone's top five this week? We'll see. That's a professional tease. It's all head on film spotting. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by the Vermont College of Fine Art MFA in Film. It offers a two-year student design project-driven graduate program of professional mentorships for your scripts, fiction, and nonfiction filmmaking, also for hybrid and transmedia projects. It's an exciting, affordable, and intense program. You could refine your creative vision as you develop intensely personal stories in an independent practice. Visit vcfa.com. Dot edu slash film. We're also brought to you by MUBI, which as regular listeners know is a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Movie's getting us ready for Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight and Although I'm a fan of Tarantino, I think you're a bigger fan, Adam, of the two Tarantino films that are on Movie right now.
2: I absolutely am. We talked about them a little bit on last week's show, Kill Bill Volume One and Volume Two, still available over at Movie. I hope many listeners out there are using this opportunity to watch these films via Movie and then write in their feedback
3: and tell you how wrong you are for not properly appreciating how great these films are. For Kill Bill Volume One, it's it's okay. It's an okay Tarantino film. So let's not mischaracterize. <laughs> Kill Bill Volume 2, eh, it's, it's probably his least successful. Moving on, Steamboat Bill Jr. We still can agree available on this. We, we can, can agree. agree
2: on this Buster Keaton film. Absolutely one of his best films, his last independent production before joining MGM. It contains some of his most elaborate set pieces. If you are a silent comedy neophyte, if you are a Buster Keaton neophyte, Steamboat Bill Jr. is a great place to start. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and then you have 30 days to watch it. You always have 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. You can also use their mobile app to download movies to watch offline. And we give listeners of our show a chance to try movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com slash filmspotting. That's M U B I dot com slash filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting with Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar. and joining us for part two of our 2015 end of year roundtable is Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune and Scott Tobias from the Next Picture Show podcast, among other outlets. It's great to see you guys again. You look like you're not well rested at all, really, from the last show. You're still recovering from part one.
1: I'm I'm still watching movies. I mean, I'm going to have to watch with the the sound down. I'm going to have to watch movies just so I catch up on everything I want to before the end of this. I feel you.
2: Yeah, I feel you. We're going to get right into the countdown here. You have heard our 10 through 6 picks. If you miss those, you can find the show at filmspotting.net or subscribe to it in iTunes. You can also find the picks listed on the top five page at filmspotting.net. I'm sure you'll hear some references to a few of those picks as we get into the top five. And as we like to do during these end-of-year roundtables, we feature voicemails from various guests, some filmmakers some are other critics sometimes they're hosts of fantasy football podcasts but someone like chris harris who you're going to hear from in a moment is a friend of the show he chimed in during our top five neo-noirs i think that's maybe last year he's an author he's a renaissance man let's hear chris harris's number one film of 2015
5: hey guys this is chris harris in amherst massachusetts wanted to thank you for another great year of film spotting i never miss an episode a little busy for me here at the end of the season, so I haven't seen everything I wanted to yet. But my favorite film of the year I have seen is Clouds of Sils Maria. I have to admit, until I heard Adam's review of Something in the Air, I wasn't familiar with Olivier Asias. But now I've gone back and I've watched Carlos and Summer Hours, and Sils Maria is a great film. I think most shockingly, as Good as Juliette Binoche is in it, Kristen Stewart's even better. Beautiful to watch, suspenseful, funny, mean. I love the film, my number one of the year. However, I will say, if ever a filmmaker makes a movie called Conversations While Looking Into the Bathroom Mirror, that'll be my all-timer. Thanks again, guys. Now,
2: Josh, I know you're a big fan of Chris's work, and he had to go take a shot at your Southern Chicago pronunciations there at the end of his voicemail. How do you feel about that?
3: Well, I'm going to be listening to his podcast
2: much more closely now, (laughs) so I can nitpick something he says. Love it. I do love his pick, and I like to hear, of course, that it was my prompting there a little bit of Olivier Asayas, the fact that I've championed his work on the show with movies like Something in the Air, Carlos, and Summer Hours that encouraged Christopher Harris to seek out Aseas' latest film, Clouds of Sils Maria, a movie that, if you do check out a few other ballots that I've submitted this year, was in my top ten at various points, and for whatever reason, as I was putting the final list together here for the show, did just slip out. But I really love the movie, and I love some of the performances, including
6: Kristen Stewart in that film. Scott, you agree? Uh, Absolutely. I I actually wrote a whole column uh, about Kristen Stewart uh, based on her performance in this film. Yeah, yeah, for the dissolve. Uh, So I I do... uh, I I love it. I love the movie. The movie was, again, one of the... the, uh, 11 through 30 <laughs> yeah, that uh, didn't quite make my list but would almost any other day really just it was just a day by day thing and this mm. is what ended up getting locked down but uh, wonderful movie wonderful performance
2: well let's get to the movies that did make the final cut here as we get to the top five Michael Phillips your number five
1: movie of the year my number five is Son of Saul from Hungary this is director László Nemesis uh, feature film debut I mm-hmm. believe and certainly one of the most startling debut films I've seen in a long time it opens wide in January in Chicago, it's already opened in New York and Los Angeles. And it, for me, it makes up for all of the earnest, effective, but carefully sanitized responses to the Holocaust we are used to seeing on film. This is, I don't want to give too much away, but it, it's set in Auschwitz in 1944. And you have a Hungarian prisoner, played by Geza Rorig. Who takes uh, again? I don't want to. I don't want to spoil what little plot there is in this picture. But he takes. He has one shot at what well, I guess what you call his moral sanity in the worst place on earth. And the film simply follows this man's experience in the camps and then outside them. The film's perspective is what makes it unique. It's there's not a single shot in it that isn't from his point of view, or at least near it, or just over his shoulder. In other words, you don't get any panoramic distancing of any type at all. And you you can kind of break that down visually, and okay, that's how the perspective is maintained visually, but it's hard to convey, without seeing it, just what that does to the viewer's experience emotionally, I think. Like Beasts of No Nation, but a little better, it's a very bruising experience and not an easy sit, but it is, uh, you know, it's one of the essential experiences of the year. And uh, I, it's a interestingly controversial picture because a lot of people you know, reading, I remember Manola Dargis coming out of the can screening uh, when she wrote for the New York Times, you know, really thought it was manipulative in sort of galling ways. And she's not alone, you know. But then the other night I run into... You know, the great Jonathan Rosenbaum, Chicago's own, uh, who I was sort of happy to find out had an experience comparable to mine coming out of it. Just really knocked out by it. And not just because of the kind of bravura technique of it, because luckily it's technique you don't necessarily notice in that self-conscious way i don't know i i really i just
6: i hope people see it make up their own mind that's my number five yeah i I think it's a stunning piece of work and one thing you mentioned about perspective it is it's also shot in academy ratio so you're really really tight on this character and his perspective and this is a a film i mean i I think the opening what 15 20 minutes that's about as good a piece of filmmaking as i've seen this year and it's got the whole film is just an almost like a second-by-second act of aesthetic calculation. Uh, Because I think, because one of the reasons why people object to this is just the very fact of what are the limits of representation what can we show on screen what can be we, we depict can, you know is can we even go to the places that this movie goes and i think this is a very moral film and i think those questions are in his head 100% of the time when you're shooting this movie and uh, i love it i don't know how it didn't make my list frankly but those are right. <laughs> but, uh, but i really really like it yeah good well good, i can't later.
2: wait to be part of the dialogue on this one as i alluded to in part 1 of the countdown here because of the bruising nature of it, just from the sounds of it, as you said, Michael, an uneasy sit or a hard movie to sit through. I've been putting it off and putting it off. Hopefully I will muster well, the courage look, here and look, soon.
1: And here's the thing. So is Schindler's List. Of course that's right. not an easy film to see. It's also highly objectionable in some ways and and extremely effective in others. And I don't have that kind of seesaw response to this particular piece of Holocaust I hate to say it, Holocaust popular art. I mean, it's going to be seen by a lot of people, and it's got a very interesting variety of reactions already in Europe and Eastern Europe. But the experience I had of it, at least on one viewing, was much closer to, say, reading Elie Wiesel's memoir, Night, mm-hmm. than seeing any other film on okay. this subject. So it's it's that's how narrow and interior the perspective is. And as Scott says, it does, it goes right up to the... Uh, limits of what you think you can handle. But, but it's it doesn't do it even in the ways that Spielberg did with Schindler. You know, it's, it's, it does it in a different way, in a in a, in a more, I think, interpretive, expressive way. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to talk about just as an aesthetic object, but it, the aesthetic choices are, you know, so strong and and so apt, I think.
6: Yeah, absolutely. Scott, your number five. My number five is The Assassin, uh, which is a film of staggering beauty uh, by Ho Shen. You know, I've heard from many that Ho's pace in plotting uh, put up barriers that were difficult to transcend. Uh, but here's a case, another case like it follows, I guess, where I think you kind of have to let those things wash over you and just appreciate the visual artistry on display. And I think you can at least connect to this character played by Shukui, a woman who's genuinely complex, who's you know an, an exile from her home, who has conflicted feelings about what she's assigned to do. You know, this film is not the next Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon, as some people seem to suggest, or maybe the marketing seem to suggest, but a period piece much more in line with Ho's the Puppet Master or, the, or Flowers of Shanghai, which are suffused with a sort of a suffocating opulence that's carried over quite beautifully mm-hmm. here. And this is actually probably his most accessible film. It's he's a tough one, but I love it. And it, and it was transporting, which is why it made this list. Hmm. Yeah, when I had
3: it at number nine, Scott and I talked about, you know, that there were some cultural contexts I couldn't grasp. You're right that the overarching story is crystal clear mm-hmm. in that she's, you know, this assassin is trying to essentially find her own way of enforcing Justice as she understands that, what that means to her outside of you know, her master's bidding, which is where she begins at mm-hmm. at the film. so there there are definitely a lot of entry points for for
6: newcomers totally. and I as think that's well. where you really want to focus so put your focus when you see the film. just don't get mm-hmm. stuck on it, right. you know, don't get frustrated. just appreciate what's it. being done on a filmic level because uh, it, it it will really blow you away for sure. Number five
3: for me is Chirac. I just talked <laughs> about this a few shows ago. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to spend too much time on it here because of that, but uh, I will say I'd forgotten before Chirac how invigorating and how dynamic a filmmaker Spike Lee could be. I mean, this is a brash, confident, bravura return to form that, quite frankly, you know, you start wondering, would he be able to do again? And so just the fact that you see something like School Days, something like Bamboozled, and something in some ways even like – do the right thing was just so thrilling. Now, in terms of gun violence and police brutality, it couldn't be timelier. Um, And I think some people are dismissing it because it doesn't seem to offer any sort of clear proposals or easy answers. But if it's being written off, you know, just as another loud voice that's lamenting the social ills, I think that's a double shame because For one thing, we need as many of such voices as we can get. Uh, And for another thing, it's underselling a movie that's funny, and it's angry, and it's righteously angering. That's maybe the main answer it's offering to all this. And that's what the best Spike Lee movies can be. So I I really think this is a career pinnacle for him.
7: This ain't no joke. Yo, tired just want a Viagra poke. Dude, this is about life and death, about a community that's a wreck. And you want to sit here and talk about how women behave? Fool, we trying to free these slaves. Slaves to the madness, slaves to this violence. <laughs> and what, you just want us to silence? We gonna make sure these fools put down these guns and stop thinking that this craziness is fun. You see, we women, we understand that life is about more than polishing your knobs. Saving lives, that's our job. It's about bringing an end to this strife and giving the hood the true meaning of life.
6: You know, one thing that I really appreciate about the movie, which I like quite a bit, which is a little bit too ragged, I guess, for me to include on the list, is that this is the way that Spike Lee starts a conversation, Mm -hmm. you know, that it is a, it is brash, as you say, uh, it is all over the place. It has a point of view or a scene or an argument or some angle that's probably going to, Anger some, everyone basically, or provoke everyone. But I love that, you know. I and I, I, you know, especially now when I think just conversation in general in the political sphere is so is so guarded and so careful and so tentative and so monitored. It just feels like a very free movie. No, it's a good way right. to put
1: it. I, I think, and I, I liked it even a little a tick less than you, Scott, and I, I'm eager to see it a second time, but whatever whatever you have a problem with, and there's a lot of things to have problems with with Chirac, it is undeniably the most interesting work Spike Lee's done in a decade or more. And that's just wonderful to see, as you say, Josh, a director who's given us such strong work in the past, even if it's been in five directions at once, uh, get back, I think, with the right material and the right subject. And I think Chicago, it was just nice to see Chicago finally calm the hell down and see the movie that they've been whining and complaining about, you know, during filming for (laughs) so long, just because, oh, it's going to be a stain on the city. Blah, blah, blah. And Chicago's got a long, dubious, unfortunate history of being unbelievably touchy about how they're portrayed on screen. From Scarface back in 32 on forward. You know, it's the same, it's been the same story. And here we had it again. And then you see this movie that's, as you say, Scott, totally vexing and sort yeah. of like tonally and stylistically going in five channels at once. And, you know, it's a fairly faithful modernization of this old Greek comedy, Lysistrata. Estrada, It's a little of everything. And you have a very, very good scene followed by a, a scene of, like, insane misjudgment. you know. And <laughs> and it's just like you kind of, you know, it really keeps you on your toes and uh, in some ways great, in some ways not so great. But I'm eager to see it a second time just to see how wrong I was giving it only two and a half stars. Oh, that's yeah. pretty wrong. Yeah, there you go. Well, well if you have been listening to the show
2: and you heard part one and you've been wondering, is Adam going to bother trying to shoehorn some theme into his top 10 picks like he always does? I'm not going to disappoint you. I'm here (laughs) for you. I looked over my choices and even the movies I was simply considering for the list, especially my 10 through 6 picks, though, something did strike me about the movies that Stood out to me this year, and it was this notion of the illusory nature of identity, primarily, but by extension, life. This conflict between who we are, who the world perceives us to be, and who we want the world to perceive us to be. If you look at my 10 through 6 movies like Tangerine, even Anomalisa, Spotlight, Panahi's Taxi, certainly. And even while we're young, there's a lot of role playing in my picks. There's a lot of multiple identities. There's a lot of secret identities. And there are also just a lot of secrets. And with that, you can maybe guess what movie is coming at number five. It's for me, the movie that in every shot reflects the ethereal nature of love, primarily, and identity. And we've heard about it previously. It was your number six, Michael. It is Todd Haynes's Carol starring Rooney Mara. She's a department store clerk with some aspirations of being a photographer. She falls in love with Kate Blanchett, a mother and wife, though certainly at the tail end of her marriage, if not full-blown end to that marriage, it's a totally fractured relationship with Kyle Chandler. And being that it's New York in the 1950s, their relationship proves to be pretty fraught with complications and consequences. You said it so well, Michael, the Edward Lachman cinematography the texture to it. There's a dreamlike quality to it, but also such a stillness and a focus that every gesture in this movie is loaded with meaning. And on most ballots, Haynes was my pick for either the second best director of the year or the best director of the year, just because of the visual choices he makes. I think they make the movie without ever suffocating it. And what I mean by that is you can sometimes ask yourself that question, okay, if a hundred different people directed the same material, would we get much of a different movie. And I think in a lot of cases, we wouldn't get much of a different movie from some of the films we see. With a movie like Carol, it's there on the screen. I can't imagine if we had 100 different filmmakers take on this subject matter, nobody else would present it the way that Todd Haynes does. I saw it three weeks ago. I did manage to lose at this moment, whatever notes I had. Fortunately, the great Dana Stevens is here to bail me out.
4: Hi, this is Dana Stevens. I am the movie critic at slate.com and a long-time listener and occasional guest on Film Spotting, and I'm going to say that my favorite movie of 2015 is Todd Haynes' Carol. And um the reason I choose Carol, I guess who can ever account for why they love and are moved by a certain film, but it seems to me that of the movies I've seen this year, Carol is the one that most beautifully marries aesthetic concerns about form and technical proficiency and, you know, just the the beauty of all the parts that put it together, the music, the cinematography, the acting, um, the choice of where to place the camera, all those things with just passion and heart and a really, really involving central romance. It also strikes me that as a love story between two women, Carol is a very appropriate movie for 2015, the year of Oberfell versus Hodges or whatever the Supreme Court case was that made marriage equality the law of the land. So um, for all those reasons, because of the great performances, because of just the the beauty that sweeps you up when you watch it, I'm going to go with Todd Haynes Carroll as my movie of the year. Thanks, guys. Can't wait to hear your picks. Bye.
2: Thank you, Dana. Very well said. Carol opens in Chicago Christmas Day. Josh, we've been talking about trying to give it a full review on the show. It certainly deserves it. Even if we don't review it, I'm definitely going to see Carol again. It's a movie that definitely hit me in a lot of ways, a lot of the similar ways that Dana mentioned. That brings us to our number four. Michael, what do you have?
1: My number four is the other astounding feature directorial debut along with Son of Saul. It's The Diary of a Teenage Girl directed by Marielle Heller. And I I just was really knocked out by this really disarming mixture of the funny, scary, and perfect balance that explores one 1970s San Francisco teenager played by Belle Powley and her ongoing affair with this dangerously easygoing boyfriend played by Alexander Skarsgård of her carelessly sensual mother played by Kristen Wiig. And it's based on a graphic novel of unusual density and wit and um, kind of a mordant sense of humor all the way through. The movie captures this perfectly and it's probably one of my two or three favorite graphic novel adaptations of any type. And uh, this is a film that a lot of people I, I recommended it to... Uh, saw and admired and we're watching it in a state of suspended horror, really, at, w- at what, yeah. the, what this young the teenager is going through and the apparent lack of the usual judgments or uh, finger wagging at, at the affair that's unfolding.
8: It feels so good to imagine
9: that he might be thinking about me. Not that I love him or anything. I'm
1: not stupid. Uh, although this young girl wises up and realizes that she doesn't have the power or position in this really miserably unbalanced and dangerous sexual relationship with the older man, but I just found this work a tightrope walk all the way through, much more than uh, Robert Zemeckis' *The Walk*. <laughs> and uh, um, it's—I'm uh, eager to see it a second time. It, it, in, in a funny way, it's not a movie you just sort of put on casually. You know, it's—you it, have to kind of, in, you know, invest in it. But it's—it's it, it's really alive. It just crackles. It's yeah, good. I love that performance from Bel Paully
2: the lead, and a well-deserving Golden Brick finalist for sure, Scott. We are on to your number four, and we have a little bit of help here actually for this pick. Again, our guest voicemailers calling in with their number one film of the year, and we're hearing from a guy here in Scott Pfeiffer who is new to the show, but not new to me. Someone I've gotten to know over the years of doing some classes at the University of Chicago's Graham School, and he writes very intelligently about cinema. Let's hear his pick.
0: Hello, Film Spotting. This is Scott Pfeiffer. I write for my own site, The Moving World, as well as The Chicago Reader and WOUB Public Media, and I think the film I feel the most affection for this year is Brooklyn. It's humane, warm, and alive. A simple story of a young Irish woman, played so alertly by Sarah Ronan, who leaves her home, her country, to move to Brooklyn in the early 1950s. Its modesty is in inverse proportion to its emotional impact. We're so used to modes of irony that the sincerity of John Crowley's film comes as a happy surprise. And I think it's something special. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye-bye.
6: My number four is Brooklyn. You know, my brain tried to kick this movie off my list, but my heart wouldn't let it. Um, (laughs) That's not to say uh, Brooklyn is not a smart movie. It is. But that its appeals are simple. This is a love triangle that speaks – clearly and movingly to the conflict between Shirsha Ronan's old home, Ireland, and her new one, America. It's such a classic immigrant story, and you can just feel just the pull of both places on her heart it's so beautiful to look at her eyes her 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 costumes the the emotional clarity of the film is so strong and i'll just flat out admit i had a lump in my throat for about two-thirds of this movie Hmm. there's a scene where she goes to what is it a holiday dinner with other people from ireland and they sing i think that was the moment from that point on Hmm. through the rest of the film I was floored by it. It was just a beautiful, beautiful movie. I'm not Irish.
4: You don't sound Irish.
8: I, I need to make this clear. No part of me is Irish. I don't have Irish parents or grandparents or anything. I'm Italian, So my, my parents are anyway.
10: So what were you doing at an Irish dance? Don't the Italians have dances?
8: Yeah, and I wouldn't want to take you to one. They behave like Italians on night.
5: What does that mean? Oh, you know. No. Hands. Too many of
8: them. Oh, my. I guess it could seem that way if he was a girl. Listen, I want everything out in the open. I came to the Irish dance because I really like Irish girls. And I was the only one who would dance with you. Oh, no, it wasn't... Oh, it was... so you danced with loads of others?
3: Scott your description is is why I think I kept putting it lower down on the screener pile even though I kept hearing things like yeah. that is it just seemed like the sort of thing well i I know what this is, I know what this is likely is going to be, and, and how good could it be that it would win me over? Now you're probably like the 25th person. <laughs> Including me
2: it, just last week on the show, I know, I, think, I know. I made this
3: same impassioned plea. So I'll get there, <laughs> I'll get
2: there. Oh, you'll see <laughs> yeah. Well, wow, one of the
6: easier sits, too,
2: of probably, 2015 probably, to catch know, up it is, with. It really and, is, it just you've been putting it you.
6: I just, I just, again... Transporting. I just entered the world of this film so easily, and you. And really, I guess the connection is Shusha Ronan and, and those those eyes. You just connect to her.
1: Yeah, and there's a, there's a strong connection to another film we're talking about a lot tonight, which is which is Todd Haynes' Carroll, because this, the character played by Rooney Mara, who's also working in a department store mm-hmm. in a, yeah. almost exactly the same year. It's either fifty two or fifty three in New York. You know, these are very uh, watchful. Maybe you could describe them as reactive characters. They're not necessarily. Uh, propelling their own lives forward the way they would like them to go yet. So they' you could uh, for, in dramatic terms, they're not the kind of dynamic pole stars for the story that other other characters are. You have to kind of just, but of course look, half the world is populated by people like that who aren't fully, in their lives yet, or maybe yeah. they won't be coming. It's it, the
6: process, too, of getting there, too. Yeah, it's her. a process, exactly. And mm-hmm. it's
1: a subtle one. And uh, I th- yeah, in a week or a year, I,
3: I dev- Brooklyn would have made my top 10. It certainly made my 11 through 30 easily. Scott, your Next Picture Show colleague, Tasha Robinson, is going to help me out here with my number four pick.
10: Hey guys, this is Tasha Robinson from The Next Picture Show, a film spotting network production. Uh, currently, the film critic at The Verge. Um, At the risk of being an animation buff cliche, uh, the film of 2015 for me was Pixar's Inside Out. It was a really competitive year. There were a lot of ambitious, innovative films that I loved, like Victoria, The Revenant, and The Big Short. But for me, Inside Out was the one film that did the best job of matching ambition to results and making the whole process feel flawless. The writer-directors, Pete Docter and Ronnie Del Carmen, do such a terrific job of teaching the audience a whole new visual language based on color, and then they use that new language as a shorthand to communicate important, complicated information about the narrative. It's a funny film. It's lively. It's exciting. But in the end, it does what Pixar does best, by looking for a deep well of emotion and diving into it, and by daring to take on something really complicated, in this case, the problem of what sadness is and what it's for and how it relates to children. Um, this is a really hard year to make choices, but the emotions at my inner control board say Inside Out is number one for me this year.
3: I can't imagine that I undervalued a Pixar film when it first <laughs> came out, but this wasn't on my top five films of the year. I was so going to bring that up when we did it in I July. couldn't believe it. And it was on mine. It was close. I mean, it wasn't like I dismissed it, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and correct that here and have Inside Out at number four. Uh, maybe I lied earlier on our previous edition of the top ten list and I might laugh more at this than Trainwreck. It was it was close between the two. I know for certain that Inside Out moved me more with this story of how Joy's just gonna have to make room for sadness. The delicate handling of this sort of emotional material is it's a Pixar trademark, of course, Scott, you guys talked about that on the next picture show mm-hmm. when you discussed Toy Story in relation to Inside Out. I also think though, this movie is a crowning animated achievement again we come to expect that, but especially here in the way it gives uh, abstract ideas about memory and about consciousness, real form and real shape that we can latch on to. So feels good to have a Pixar film back on my top 10 list after a few, few pictures away here. Yeah, that definitely surprised me back in July when we
2: did that top five films of the year so far that I would have the Pixar movie on that list. And it surprises me, frankly, that it's not in my top 10 just because it really was in there. For most of the year, I love that movie, and I'm probably wrong. It probably belongs on this list. My number four is a movie that we have already heard two voicemails, I think, picking it as the best movie of the year. That was in part one of the show. You're going to get one more here. Spoiler alert. Hmm. I wish I had something profoundly unique to add about the greatness of George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road. I don't really. I'll say that it passes the Todd Haynes test that I just mentioned talking about Carol. Same material, different director, vastly different movie you'd have to have a vastly different movie, and it's difficult to improve on what Miller has done conducting what I called, at the time we reviewed it, Josh, this symphony of chaos. The music, the way he incorporates it, diegetically, non-diegetically, the practical effects, the stunt work, the sheer relentlessness of the movie. It's the best action movie of the year in a year where we got some pretty good ones. Rogue Nation, The Martian, I think, could qualify as an action movie. The Force Awakens, Black Hat, I'd throw in there for Michael Mann, even Furious 7, but... This one really does stand out as the best. It's that much visceral fun, while also being a pretty poignant film about oppression and about empowerment. Ultimately, so I'm going to join the chorus of hosannas for Mad Max: Fury Road. That brings us to our number three choice, Michael Phillips. You're up.
1: My number three is the one I feel kind of the most uh, uncertain about, but and I'm not. It sort of found its way there without me even. You know, kind of placing it uh, consciously, but it's Love and Mercy, directed by Bill Polad. This is the Brian Wilson biopic of a sort. This is, of course, about the, the beach boy here in the film, played by Paul Dano, and then as an older man, John Cusack. And I think the performances by Dano and Cusack represent career bests for both of these actors. And it's just essentially the story of how Wilson coped with his demons, chemical and human, while creating really some of the saddest happy music in history and also just how he got out of the clutches of his, quote, caretaker played by Paul Giamatti. What can you say? In simple terms, it's one of the best musical biopics in in decades, I think. And I think it's surprisingly off formula for how it tells that story. And not just because it's dealing with two different actors playing him at two different times in his life, but it really gets into the head of of an artist in the studio in a way that I just haven't seen in a long time. And Bill Polad is mainly a producer. He's also a producer of unusually good taste, but I think he's a guy who's just been on enough of the right movie sets to suddenly develop into a really astute director at least on this scale and Paul Dano's an actor who's driven me crazy <laughs> half yeah, his career I'm with crazy. you there we talked about him over the years I mean I mean just and um, I'm with you that I love him in this film it's his yeah, best performance mannered, by a mile mannered ticky I mean and my uh, one of my favorite films the last 10-15 years there will be blood there he is playing a large role and even he couldn't kill that film. but uh um <laughs> uh, it's something about the aptness the rights the the rightness of, of casting that actor as that particular troubled soul inspired, you know, and, and it may be that he's sort of heading in the, I I don't want to compare Paul Dano to Philip Seymour Hoffman, but I had a little trouble with Hoffman originally too, because he was tended to be in the early screen performances, hammy, self-conscious, overly theatrical for my taste. And Dano, maybe he's learned, maybe he's learned something by, by going through love and mercy and just realizing how you don't have to jump up and down to be noticed. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Remember, it's the uh, 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 higher octave on the upbeats in
5: the bridge.
10: Hey, Brian.
5: I love that. Brian?
10: Yeah? I think you might have screwed up here. Really? Let me see. Well, you've got Lyle playing in D, and the rest of us are in A major. Yeah, that's right. How does that work? Two bass lines and two different keys?
0: Well, it works in my head. It's all playing in my head. The orchestration and the five vocal parts. I think it's going to work. Let's try it.
1: And that was one where I was very gratified recommending it to a lot of people. Who didn't see it in the in the few weeks it had in the theaters, and they caught up with it, and they said, "Damn right, it's it's awfully good."
2: Yeah, I had a very positive reaction to it too. I'm happy to hear that you That's did. A, that Michael. sounds a little
6: qualified. No, and
2: no, I know, and I'm very. It's, I mean, Scott Tobias on my left has already given me he's giving me the look. Here's
6: well, the thing. I'm still reeling from the Hoffman comment.
2: <laughs> it may have actually just slipped outside my top thirty of films. That's how good 2015 was. That I really Darn, like Darn, Love Darn. and Mercy, Darn. and it's right in the mix there. And I do think. If there's one thing we learned from the year in cinema, it's that you should never let Paul Giamatti anywhere near managing no. your group.
6: No, oh,
1: no, it's just, no, just not going to end well. And you shouldn't let Giamatti near that particular rug he was wearing in Love and Mercy. Uh, that was the one, one of the few true. flaws. Yeah, and, I think, yeah, I thought
6: it felt like a lot of those period details of the film were a little much. But the one thing, the other thing, too, about this film that I wanted to mention that I did like was— Elizabeth v- Banks. Well, Elizabeth Banks She's great. It, great. Really good She's did, is yeah. really good, but also the scene of him, you know, recording music. Uh, you know, I mean, because, yeah. you, you, you know, you think right. of him as a troubled guy, you know, and you also think of these sessions as being torturous, right? No, just, but they're,
1: they're joyous. Just, joyous, joyous, exactly. joyous. Yeah, yeah,
6: yeah. Just to see the joy of him creating on the fly and the musicians responding to him and it being a much different process that I think you might imagine of just like, oh, this crazy guy's just going to drag all of these musicians in here, and it's not that vibe at all.
1: And those are very, historically, very accurate, because there's a lot of that sound, a lot of that recording really exists, the between-takes chatter you, in, in the recording of Pet Sounds. That, that's on the record, you can, and, and you can tell that Dano really took the studying seriously, as did... The director and the screenwriter. Yeah, it gets I mean, that, all those music scenes just right. Just right. I mean, you doesn't... can tell those are real musicians, the people know what they're doing,
6: the ones who are real musicians in the scene. It really works. Yeah, and you don't have scenes, I mean, uh, you know, connective tissue type scenes where it's like, you just feel like the Beach Boys are kind of. Telling you where that what the state of the Beach Boys are because right, it right. is natural, right?
1: No, it, it, it chooses only to tell what, you know a, a particular story. Of, and I think look, we all ha- we all come at every movie with a certain knowledge base. I really didn't know uh, diddly do about the Beach Boys going in. I like the music, uh, especially Pet Sounds, but. A lot of, you know, and you don't go to a movie like this for the documentary truth. You just go for a response to the truth mm-hmm. or, you know, an interpretation. And that's that's what I got. But, you know, Beach Boy Wonks may have a different experience of the film. I, I can't speak for them.
6: Scott, your number three? My number three has been mentioned twice already. That would be Carol, uh, which is a typically gorgeous Todd Haynes movie that brings him back to the Serkian themes of Far From Heaven and following the forbidden love between two people. Haynes is so perceptive about the social pressures that can bear down on a loving relationship. And it's not hard to connect this story from over a century ago to the stresses of the day, even now that gay marriage is law. I don't know. I don't know what else to say about this film that hasn't been said already. It's full of grace notes. I don't think there's anything out of order here. That little structural bit in there, I think, makes the movie.
1: Where where we begin and basically right exactly right right
6: right. where it's framed how it's framed is so surprising and so moving and uh, it just it sticks the landing (laughs) in a big Mm -hmm. big way so that got it all the way up to number three for me
3: yeah it's at my number eleven and it does even though it does have what I talked about in the previous installment all the movies on my list needed that sort of wow catch-your-attention-make-you-sit-up moment. It has that, and it is the second part of the bookend, mm-hmm. uh, where we're just understanding everything with a, a deeper feeling and a deeper nuance. Yeah, it's, it's really magnificent, so very easily could have been on my list. Mm-hmm. For my number three, let's hear from Chris Klemick, who recently joined us for our James Bond extravaganza. Hello,
9: Adam, Josh, Sam, and Candice. It's Chris Klemick of NPR and the late lamented The Dissolve, among others. And I'm calling to say my favorite film of 2015 is George Miller's 15 Years in the Making, Mad Max Fury Road. Miller's return to the action genre after 30 years or so making medical dramas and family films does feature some of the most visceral, thrilling, flesh-and-blood stunt work ever captured on film, but it's the confidence and economy of the storytelling and performances that makes it my top pick. The movie doesn't belabor its connections to the prior Mad Max movies and doesn't explain how the tribal society of a Morton Joan is chrome face spraying Warboy's works through exposition. It just trusts the audience to infer all that stuff. Action is character. Plus, it isn't easy to upstage Tom Hardy, but in her performance as the one armed war rig driver Imperator Furiosa, Charlize Theron pulls it off. Call it brilliant, call it elegant, call it visionary, just don't call it a reboot. Anyway, that's my pick, Fury Road. Happy holidays, guys.
3: This was the year of the Fast and the Furious movies for us, Adam. That's I still right. can't believe <laughs> all 7 of them. You watched all of those with me. I'm so glad we did. Dedication. And when we reviewed the last one, I had the chance to posit my theory of Zen chaos, that the best action <laughs> films depict outrageously impossible physical feats with uncommon clarity and precision and control and often combine those two things in a single transcendent instant. That's in full evidence here from director George Miller. He beautifully balances in-your-face intensity with instances of stabilizing calm. I think what's interesting about Fury Road is the way he uses periodically what you could almost call action-establishing shots. So we're right in the middle of something insane, and we have this tightly-framed fight scene, maybe, or a car chase. And then all of a sudden we go to this super wide angle, like an establishing shot that places a number of racing vehicles against the vast landscape. It's just a very minute, take your breath instant in the midst of all the craziness. Now, many people have also praised Fury Road, partly, I think, because of Charlize Theron's galvanizing performance as a bold feminist statement. And we joked in our review, Adam, how we're not exactly qualified to answer that. But I think... We tried, nevertheless. We tried. We tried. And, you know, if someone wants to make that claim... I'm not going to argue with him. I mean, this this film is doing a lot more than just racing around in the desert. How do you know this
4: place even exists?
10: I was born there.
7: So why'd you leave?
10: I didn't. I was taken as a child.
9: Stolen. You've done this before?
10: Many times. Now that I drive a war rig... This is the best shot I'll ever have. And um
8: They're looking for hope. What about you?
2: Redemption. Well, for my number three, we're going to go to the complete opposite end of the Fury Road spectrum. It's a movie directed by Andrew Hay called 45 Years. A quiet little movie, mainly involving a Husband and Wife, played by Tom Courtney and Charlotte Rampling. And I'm the beneficiary of a wonderful voicemail that comes to us from a Film Spotting Advisory Board member, a longtime listener of the show who has started writing a whole lot more this year, writing in Seattle a lot of movie reviews, and her stuff is always fantastic, especially on Letterboxd. She obviously has good taste because 45 Years is her number one movie of 2015.
7: Hi, film spotting. This is Melissa Taminga, longtime listener of the podcast and writer for Seattle Screen Scene, calling in with my favorite film of 2015, Andrew Hayes 45 Years. The story, centering around a couple played by the marvelous Charlotte Rampling and the equally superb Tom Courtney, begins with a small revelation about something in their past. And the film, over one week and within the close private domestic space of the couple. Uh, it really traces the ways in which that revelation begins to intrude on them and reverberate, making more and more ripples in their identity as a couple, Uh, their assumptions about their relationship and about one another and about their 45 years of marriage. Uh, Sometimes cinema is all about the spectacle. It can go so big, and I love that spectacle. I love that bigness. But This film demonstrates how cinema can, by way of the smallest and most intimate of gestures, resonate in big ways and kind of shatter and reshape my own perspective and assumptions about myself and my relationships, and that's what this film did. So that's 45 Years by Andrew Hay. Hope everyone has a chance to check it out, and I hope we're getting a film spying review. Thanks guys!
2: It comes out here in Chicago on January 22nd. It absolutely will get a full review on film spotting. We'll see if I can articulate how deeply insightful and how subtly devastating 45 years is, as well as Melissa did. Charlotte Rampling is a wonder in the movie. I will say that my number one actress performance of the year. Tom Courtney, though, actually in all of my ballots was my favorite lead performance by an actor Mm. as well. I think it's easy to overlook Courtney. Rampling has for lack of a better term, the flashier role, the more dramatic and heavy emotional role. But you cannot look past how understated and simple but effective Tom Courtney is. Just a wonderful actor, and both of them together in this movie, it's a wonder. 45 years is really great.
1: Yeah, it's been an odd day.
9: sure has. I just uh, <clears throat> stayed, stayed at home, you
1: know, grappling with a ball cock. But you, you're right. I hardly go walking anymore. It was a nice day, so
4: uh, off I went. So where did you go? Just for the village. To buy cigarettes. Mm. <laughs> I've lost my sense of smell, you know. Mm, I just don't want us to start smoking again.
6: No, I, I won't. I
4: won't. I promise. Okay. Go on. Uh, so. <clears throat> I was in the village.
6: Yeah, there. I mean, I, I one of the oh, things I, I love about it, so many things, I don't know, again, how it didn't risk. make my list, I, I don't know, I need I need to reconsider, uh, but this idea that marriage, even this 45-year marriage, that marriage itself is, is an active, ever-changing, dynamic mm-hmm. thing, no matter how far you go into it. There are issues that are at play, old issues in this case, that can come up and throw you for a loop a little bit, and it's got, there's an excitement here that you would associate, or a drama here that you associate with somewhere closer to the beginning of a relationship. There's that kind of tension. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, It's a good, a good way um, and, to put uh, it. And I th- also feel, again, sticking the landing. Talking yeah. about sticking oh, the the ending, ending is one oh, of the oh man, the last the five minutes of the year. Last five
1: yeah. minutes are great because there's without giving it away, I mean, this once once the secrets uh, kind of been pawed through and is out of the box, and one char- the character who's finally kind of unburdened. You know, the secret it feels clearly better, and then the other character has to kind of sit with it and mm-hmm. live with it. And uh, the look on the key faces at the end really tell you like that. He's a great small scale filmmaker. Yeah, the previ- Weekend, his previous Weekend's film was tremendous. great as yeah, well. Yeah, no, I can't wait to see it again. Yeah, it's a movie,
2: I'll add, that. We'll get into this during our review, but what you were suggesting there, Scott, for me, the number of times I was nodding (laughs) with the movie just in terms of what it says, not only about marriage, but about masculinity. I think it hits on so many truths, but marriage in particular, I have not been with my wife for 45 years, but we have been together more than half of our lives, Mm -hmm. and that's something, and there are those moments where I just— could nod in appreciation that it hit on so many little insights about those long-term
3: relationships. I think a lot of people will be able to relate to the movie 45 years. Well, this is a best of show, but we're still going to make time for some worst of acting. Massacre Theater is next with a scene in which secrets will be revealed, including some we'd probably rather not
2: know. As they were last week in part one of this countdown, our music breaks have been curated by musician and longtime friend of the show, Sam Smith. Some of his picks for the best film music of 2015. In this break, a selection from Carter Burwell's score for Todd Haynes's Carol Michael Phillips. You said it's one of the best scores in Absolutely. recent years.
1: He's Burwell with this and Anomalisa in the same year. Yeah.
2: Thing. Enjoy this from Todd Haynes's Carol and stay with us.
3: Spotting is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform that I know many film spotting listeners use and are quite pleased with. That's probably because Squarespace's sites look professionally designed no matter what your skill level is going to be. There's no coding required here. Squarespace offers intuitive and easy-to-use tools. They've got state-of-the-art technology that powers your site. That's going to ensure security and stability. This is why Squarespace is trusted by millions of people, also some of the most respected brands in the world, They're offering a free domain if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial site today. You don't need a credit card. Just go to squarespace.com. And you mentioned those listeners. We'd love to promote some more sites. Send us your testimonials.
2: If you are a big Squarespace user and fan and you want to get a little bit more traffic, well, maybe we can help you out. We'll put a link in our show notes. We might mention you on air. Send that site and your explanation of why you like Squarespace to feedback at filmspotting.net. For those of you out there not currently using Squarespace, when you do decide to sign up for it, make sure to use
3: the offer code film. Film to get a special offer on your first purchase, we have a relatively new sponsor here on Film Spotting Vermont College of Fine Art MFA in Film. This program offers a two year student design project driven graduate program of professional mentorships for your scripts. Fiction, nonfiction, filmmaking, both are included, as well as transmedia projects. This is how it works. Each semester begins with an on campus residency week of screenings, workshops, lectures and preparation for an independent study plan for your personal project. After that, students and the faculty return home. They're going to work independently. They'll meet monthly via Skype as the projects unfold. The MFA program is designed to fit into the life you have and the films you make. I'm going to totally date myself here, but back when I was in
2: an MFA program, a graduate program for film and video... This was in the way pre-digital era? I wouldn't say way pre-digital era, Mr. Larson. But it was pre-digital. It was not quite pre-digital, by the end of our first year we were doing some digital work and we were also using an Avid for our final project, but absolutely, spent most of the year cutting with a razor blade or some kind of tape splicer and even working on a flatbed, which I still think is great experience. But I can tell you, we were definitely not throwing out words like transmedia project. So I think the Vermont College of Fine Art may be a little bit more cutting edge in terms of technology than what I was working with back when I was in film school. And what I love about this program from what I've heard about it is the way students aren't locked into tracks. That usually does happen after the first year or so. It might be editing or screenwriting or directing, whatever it is that seems to be the area you want to focus on. The Vermont College of Fine Art encourages their students to explore and experiment any area of filmmaking that their projects might take them on under the mentorship of accomplished professionals. It's exciting, affordable, and intense. If you are out there and you are looking to embark on a filmmaking career or just take your current artistic output to another level, you can refine your creative vision as you develop intensely personal stories in an independent practice at the Vermont College of Fine Art MFA and Film. Visit vcfa.edu slash film.
9: This is Craig Brewer, the director of Black Snake Moan, and you're listening to Film Spotting.
2: This is Daniel Nava, writer for the Chicago Cinema Circuit, and my favorite film of the year is Don Hertzfeldt's World of Tomorrow. Most critics are probably a little reticent about including this short film on their list of the best films of the year, but I am not. Hertzfeldt's stick figures say more about life and living within the confines of 17 minutes than most films could even suggest over the course of a feature-length time. It's a film that cuts straight to the bone, bitterly funny, and honestly insightful, using its economy of time better than anything else this year. This sort of brevity should be applauded, and at 17 minutes, you have no excuse not to watch it in one sitting, unless you're Adam Kempinar. Thanks for having me on, guys. This is Film Spotting with Adam, Josh, Scott Tobias, and Michael Phillips. We are sharing our... Top five picks for the top 10 films of 2015. We'll get back to that in just a bit. Great to hear from Daniel Nava, even though he got a little bit of a shot in there. I hope the you went back bit.
3: and uh, watched all 17 minutes in a row. You didn't like break it in half and then three months later watched the second half, did you? I did not do that. Okay, good.
2: I watched the first half several months ago, and then I watched all 17 together, and you know I love the movie. We talked about it last week in our top five discoveries of 2015. Thank you, Daniel. Again, like Scott Pfeiffer, who we heard from earlier, another young critic out there who I've had a chance to get to know over the course of a few summers at the University of Chicago's Graham School, and I would refer to myself as their instructor, except that would oversell my impact as the teacher of that class. These guys just know so much about cinema, so happy to include him here in this countdown. We have a little bit of housekeeping, including wanting to mention a very happy holidays to everybody out there listening to this over Christmas weekend or shortly after. We hope that you will maybe celebrate the new year Shortly after January 1st, you can come out to the main stage in Rogers Park here in Chicago, Saturday, January 9th. It is at 8 p.m., so we're expecting a lot of Chicago listeners, but every time we do this, we have some people who travel, sometimes from fairly long distances. and Make it a whole Chicago weekend. There you go. It is on a Saturday night. It is at 8 p.m., so even if you got up early Saturday morning, you can road trip it. You can make it to Chicago. We'd love to have you. Tickets are on sale now for that show. Visit filmspotting.net for more details. We are giving away more movie passes, including passes for Charlie Kaufman's Anomalisa. I think it's one of the best movies of the year. You should see it, and it's even better if you can see it for free. And also, we encourage you to go to filmspotting.net and vote in our current poll question. We're asking for your pick for the Film Spotting Golden Brick, our award for the overlooked, underseen, kind of indie movie of the year that we want to champion. Your vote will help decide the winner of this year's brick. The top five finalists are Buzzard, The Diary of a Teenage Girl, The Duke of Burgundy, Tangerine, and What We Do in the Shadows. We will announce the winner of The Golden Brick at that live show in January. Let's get to... Speaking of
3: shows, a little fun with Massacre Theatre. We perform a scene badly. You get a chance to win a prize. Last time, we massacred this. (laughs) Well,
8: you better hit me, Sean, because you only got one bullet left. So do you.
5: Wow. We've got something in common. We both know our guns. What we don't have in common is that I don't care if I live, and you do, Sean. That hurts. You're not having any fun, are you, Sean? Why don't you come with us? Try terrorism for hire. We'll blow some sh- up. It's more fun. Shut the. F- up. You watch your mouth. F- I'm about to unleash the biblical plague. Hell, a deserves. I'll give this call sh- a break if my brother and I walk. Oh, 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 no! I, I see, I see. You, you think I'm bluffing? Maybe I am. But then maybe I'm not. More importantly, what would you do with me locked up? You'd drive your wife and kid crazy. Say, how is your daughter anyway? Is she ripening by me? Your darling Janie, your little peach, is she right?
3: That was Nicolas Cage as Caster Troy and John Travolta as Sean Archer in 1997's Face Off. It was written by Mike Werb and Michael Calieri. Directed by John Woo. That massacre was part of episode 565, a show that featured my conversation
2: with critic and documentarian Kent Jones, director of the Hitchcock Truffaut documentary. We also shared our top five movie books. That's a top five I'd love to get from you critics at some point, Michael and Scott. Maybe we can do that down the road. The tie in with Face Off, it wasn't really part of the show, but posted separately. We did a blind spotting review of Hitchcock's The Wrong Man. That was a movie we hadn't seen up to that point. We rectified that and talked about it on a separate download. Among other things, The Wrong Man is a classic mistaken identity movie.
3: But as always, listeners found a few other connections. One of those listeners was Rosalie Messer from Naperville, Illinois. I love this week's Massacre Theater, she says, which is clearly Face Off, one of the most outlandishly entertaining movies of the modern age. As for tie-ins, I imagine it's the title being two words separated by a slash the way Hitchcock Truffaut is. I got to
2: jump in here. A lot of people pointed that out, and I truly believe that was pure coincidence spotting. Like Sam picked
3: Face Off to go with Hitchcock Truffaut just because of the mistaken identity. Two movies that have slashes in it. Little bonus. There you go. But you could also argue, Rosalie continues, that face-off deals with shifting identities and appearances the way Vertigo does, right? Additionally, I think some people see John Woo as more of a genre guy, and sure, he does a lot of action crime pictures, even though his work has been pretty influential, much like Hitchcock was seen as the master of suspense, rather than one of the top five directors of all time whose work still influences people today. We also heard from James in Regina,
2: Saskatchewan. If I were to take a bit of a thematic walk, I could also imagine a sexual link between the two. Stay with me. Or don't, James says. In this week's masquerade Theater, we hear a maniacal or just maybe ticklish Nicolas Cage lusting after John Travolta's teenage daughter. I was actually tickling Josh during the scene. (laughs) A little earlier in Face Off, there's a shot that's hopefully destined for Cage's in-memoriam montage, him dressed as a priest crying to the heavens, groping a nun from behind. Outside of frenzy or psycho, I'm not sure Alfred was ever that explicit.
3: There was no reason to continue the tickling during the top five, though. That's when it got a little weird. (laughs) Good point. <laughs> ben Howarth in Houston, Texas says, I have to say, even with Josh's mix of Elvis and White Flavor Flav and Adam's Vinnie Barbarino. <laughs> I was going full Barbarino. <laughs> Boy, it gets better. Adam's Vinnie Barbarino meets the talking mucus from those decongestant commercials performances. <laughs> okay, that's really what I was going for. <laughs> you still somehow managed to be even less ridiculous than Cage and Travolta's long-awaited cinematic standoff, Face Off, truly is the heat for over actors. <laughs> Couple more quick ones here. Jose Maldonado in Lakeland,
2: Florida. I just wanted to thank you guys for managing to make me look completely ridiculous at work, though it wouldn't be the first time. I was doing okay, keeping my composure while listening at my cubicle, even as I realized it was a scene from Face Off, you guys were massacring. However, I could no longer contain my laughter once Josh ended that scene with, well, what I can only describe as some sort of primal growl from an animal that is yet to be discovered.
3: Your little peach? Is she ripe? <laughs>
2: And as I covered my mouth to muffle my laughter, drawing odd looks from my co-workers, all I could do was hopelessly point to my headphones and slump down in my chair. I guess I can file this away as yet another great film-spotting listener experience.
3: One more here from Jedediah Aries in St. Louis. Did the two of you not think to do your impressions of the other doing impressions of the actors doing impressions of each other? He just blew my mind. WTF Adam and Josh, missed opportunity. I don't think you should consider any entries to this one valid unless the slash appears between face and face. And off. We did get a few of those, and it made it very hard to catalog all the entries,
2: the people who incorrectly listed the title of Face Off. I still included them, Josh. I'm sorry, Jedediah. We did get a lot of them, too. I think it was your Nicolas Cage performance. Josh, why don't you reach into the brimming Film Spotting hat and pick out this week's winner? The winner is Zach Santucci from Queens, New York. Congratulations, Zach. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own Film Spotting t shirt. <laughs>
4: Round tones, round tones. Now let me hear you
2: read your line. We'll bring Michael and Scott back into our reindeer games here for a moment as we get to this week's edition of Massacre Theatre. People out there who are experts on this film, and I include myself in that, there's a little bit of a hint. You might recognize that we did alter slightly the end of this scene as you hear it, just because it would have gotten ridiculously obvious with some of the lines and character names. But other than that, it's pretty well intact, and I'm excited that we found a scene somehow that included all four of us here in the room. Are you guys ready?
3: I don't think so. <laughs> there's, already, there's already been some grumbling about not enough lines. Yeah, so oh, you're right. I, it's it's I getting a little diva in here. This is going <laughs> to be rough. <laughs> okay. I don't
2: even know what the tie-in is here, to this th- week's th- show, honestly.
1: Let me just do my uh, uh, tongue twister warm-up here. Give me the gift of a grip top sock. I'm ready. Well, That's going to make, make a done. huge difference. <laughs> it's going to. Ready.
2: Scott, you started off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? <laughs> Apparently you're not, no. but here we go. Okay. Action.
6: Well, I'll confess something that none of you really know about me. I have a lot of sex. Yeah, we know, Stacy. Only because I just told you. This is a good idea. That was a pretty bad example, but this is a good idea.
2: Why don't we all go around the room, and we can all say something about ourselves that nobody else knows? Okay,
1: I got something. This is hard for me to admit to you guys.
3: I think we all know where this is going. Let's be
1: honest. Well, for the last two years, I've had a serious gambling problem. What? What? It started when I broke up with my girlfriend. Well, there it is.
2: Anyone else? Okay, I've never really been one of those girls who had a lot of friends who were girls. And I do now. And that's pretty cool. So that's me. Someone else
3: please go. And And scene. scene. It's so cozy in here now. Friendly.
2: what was that accent?
3: Uh, I mean, really. The people (laughs) who speak that way tend to um, enjoy shrimp on Barbies. Wow. (laughs) I mean, you
2: just put back relations with the country of Australia 200 years,
3: if that's even possible. That's how far back. I've done done Australian before, and and I... I think it might have until done a little that better line, job of until it. Until that
1: line reading, I was really I really admired Australia for the the gun laws and a lot of things, <laughs> and then somehow it's all gone yeah. out, out the window now. Ah uh, well. Well if
2: you know what scene we just massacred despite that attempt at an accent by Josh, email the movie's title along with
3: your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, January fourth. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced live at our twenty fifteen rap party. That's on January 9th. To get official Massacre Theater Rules, visit filmspotting.net.
8: Hey guys, this is Matt Singer from Film Spotting SVU calling in with my number one movie of 2015, and I'm going to go with Inside Out, uh, a movie so emotional, both literally and figuratively, I guess. That uh, just hearing the score now, on, uh, online or in a little clip, it, it starts to get me choked up. Uh, this is this is to me just total package. You got funny and melancholy in equal measure. And uh, the story is about how it's important to balance joy and sadness in your own life. And the way that that form follows function, I think, is just brilliant. And and so are the character designs and the, the world-building, the voice acting. It is going to be one of my core memories from the movies for a really long time. Thanks for another great year of podcasts, and uh, happy holidays, everybody. Take care.
2: We get back to our top 10 films of 2015 countdown with Matt Singer, host of Film Spotting, SVU, writer and editor at Screen Crush. And his pick was your number four, Josh. Tasha Robinson's number one, Inside Out. Very well said. Matt, thank you for that. That brings us to our top two. We're in the home stretch here, guys. Our top two picks, the two best films of the year. Michael, what do you have?
1: Uh, my number two, uh, almost my number one. I don't know why, you know, Coin Toss, who knows? Uh, Anomalisa, directed by Duke Johnson and Charlie Kaufman, who wrote it. It's opening wide in January. And this is, uh, it's a more memorable piece of animation to me than Pixar's Inside Out. And it's ridiculous to compare the two because they're such radically different forms of animation for such different audiences. But as Adam pointed out in part one, uh, I think you had it as number nine, mm-hmm. is that right, Adam? This is about a customer service expert voiced by David Thewlis, who is on a business trip to Cincinnati, and he is looking up an old girlfriend, uh, which ended a relationship that ended very badly about 10 years earlier. And it's essentially just one lonely, sort of forlorn, uh, sad sack of a kind of oddly relatable character who finds heartache and a little bit of solace in this uh, business trip to Cincinnati. It's a stop-motion animation. It looks marvelous and not just... Because it looks quote retro or old fashioned, but because it's sort of inventing a new form of animation as it goes, and it it is just a mordant delight. It's one of the funniest pictures of the year. It's also kind of one of the saddest portraits of <laughs> middle aged manhood that I've seen ever you know in my life. And uh, I just I couldn't wait to see it a second time, and it really it really held up very nicely the second time. And I, I'm um, uh, yeah, I mean, if if I really had to think about it hard, if, who knows? In a few more weeks, I might it might be my number one pick for mm-hmm. the year.
3: Ended up at number two. One of the things about Anomalisa that you can pick up on a second time really is the sound design going on here, which is so critical in getting us inside this guy's head, uh, which in a sense is where the entire. The film is taking place, really. Right, right. And, um, yeah, just what they add there in terms of the ambiance and, and the vocal work. Uh, we've talked about how good the vocal performances are here.
6: Jennifer Jason Leigh um, playing oh, the, she's, the, the she's key. She's so female. crucial to, mm-hmm. to that picture, yeah. Yeah, and I th- this is such a Charlie Kaufman movie, isn't it? I mean, it started out as a Kickstarter. Uh, it, I think it was going to be a pretty small-scaled Project and it just he just can't help but to add on add layers of complexity, make it a more difficult undertaking, and all of those details really come out.
1: And I think they they had the right blueprint to start from because it was Kaufman wrote it as kind of a a radio play yeah. that was staged in Los Angeles on on you know the, in a conventional theatrical staging. So they I think they figured out a lot about what you know was this going to translate uh, uh, as as any kind of
6: story and. And, uh, my God, it sure did. Yeah, and in the touches, there's a lot of visual touches. I mean, this is a it may have had its roots as a radio play, but so many of the things that I love about the film are just pure cinema. Mm-hmm. Scott, your number two. Okay., uh, my number two is Phoenix, which instantly has one of the best closing scenes in movie history. Can we agree on that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. And I was so gobsmacked by that scene the first time that I had to go back and watch Phoenix again to confirm that the rest of the film was worthy of it. And I think it is. Christian Petzold has drawn from classic stories before. He made a film called Jericho, which is an excellent take on The Postman Always Rings Twice. But this take on Vertigo, which is really one of the most elusive and strange and best films ever made, takes a lot of nerve, and uh, he and his muse, Nina Haas, pull it off. I mean, they just pull it off. This is a riff on Vertigo that's full of meaning and uh, emotional richness and history. And again, that I just that ending it just knocks you on the floor. Mm-hmm. Phoenix for me
2: is one of the three or four movies that I'm most kicking myself. I can't believe it's not in my top ten. Yeah. You've said that a couple times, Scott, and Phoenix is that film for me. It's definitely up there.
3: Yeah, I think I had the same experience. It, it was mm-hmm. uh, as much as I was appreciating it while I was watching it, it didn't – it just jumped up so many degrees when it all clicks mm-hmm. in that final scene. And and that's maybe why it's like at a, a 12, 13, yeah, something that, like that, that for that, me. That
6: would have been that would have been the case if I hadn't seen it that second time because, yep. that, because you see – when you see it the second time, you see just how carefully – it builds to that moment and mm-hmm. how much it earns that moment. It's playing right now on, I think it's streaming on Netflix currently, and I really would really encourage people who have seen it before to see it again. And of course, people who haven't seen it, you got to see it. All right, my number two
3: is White God. This is where the impounded dogs escape and take over Budapest. I was all in just hearing about that <laughs> premise, to be honest with you. You know that old yarn. <laughs> we get them all the time, but I can't get enough of them. I had no idea, though, that the movie would end up being as powerful as it is. The director here, Cornell Mundruso, not only makes this the rise of the Planet of the Apes inflected thriller that I had hoped it would be, but also an incisive allegory about uh, European fears of immigration. And that's become even more incisive a few months later here. Even more surprising for me, though, is that this also works as a coming-of-age story. I mean, there's a parallel narrative here. the structure of the film and it follows a young girl and her dog who gets lost and then caught up in this uprising. So in a sense, they're both resisting domestication, you know, d- hmm. different sorts. And and it was really a different way of lensing and filtering that coming-of-age experience. The two dogs that play the main character here, Hagen, they're just stunning. I mean, the, the trainers take this approach where they don't anthropomorphize them at all. And that just heightens the sense of reality. And when they get to that sequence of these 200-some actual dogs running through the empty streets of Budapest, I mean, it's, it's just electric and overwhelming that uh, that sort of thing can be staged and captured as well as it is on camera i don't think at the rep party adam we're going to have time for best animal performance but <laughs> i'm telling you hagen get my vote right away okay
2: i'm intrigued i'm definitely intrigued by white god my number two It definitely proved to be a challenge for me forming this list because it's difficult to put a movie that I last saw and reviewed in April Hmm. this high on it. It's just not fresh in my mind the way so many other films I saw more recently are. But I'm pretty confident that Alex Garland's directing debut would still hold up. The movie is Ex Machina. It stars Donald Gleason as a programmer who wins a contest to... Spend a week or so with this CEO, this brilliant CEO played by the wonderful Oscar Isaac. And it turns out he's going to be part of this A.I. test and actually be the human part of this A.I. test with Alicia Vikander's robot, her machine, basically, and try to see how far along Oscar Isaac's creation has come and see how self-aware she really is. This was a pretty big year for Donald Gleason between Ex Machina, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, Brooklyn, and The Revenant. I'm pretty confident in saying his best casting was here, even though I do think Garland maybe asks a little bit too much of him near the end of the movie in terms of trying to convey the fractured sense of self that the character has. But he's very good. Even better are Oscar Isaac and Alicia Vikander. I think, though, you become keenly aware, sort of like with Phoenix, you only become Really aware of how good they are at the end of the movie, when everything is played out and we can really recognize all the layers to their performances. I love a movie that isn't a usual suspects or a Sixth Sense type of movie. I don't think there's really a major twist. I wouldn't say this movie has a major twist. In fact, everything plays out precisely as it should play out. And yet... When you watch it, I think on a second or third viewing, I can only assume that you will see it completely differently. Josh, when we talked about this movie on our top five of the year so far show in July, I posed the question how your perception of every character would shift the more you saw the movie in terms of who you most empathize with who you are rooting for, whose eyes you see it through. So that's a neat little trick that Garland pulls off with this movie. And as I was forming this list, and we talked about movies like 45 Years, Anomalisa, previous picks of mine, I kept returning to this phrase in my mind about movies that nail us. They just nail human beings and all of our collective wants and desires and our frailties. And I think Ex Machina, by the end, might be the most incisive of them all.
0: Did you program her to flirt with me? If I did, would that be cheating? Wouldn't it? Caleb, what's your type? Of girl? No, of salad dressing. Yeah, of girl. What's your type of girl? You know what? Don't even answer that. Let's say it's black chicks, okay? That's your thing. For the sake of argument, that's your thing, okay? Why is that your thing? Because you did a detailed analysis of all racial types and you cross-referenced that analysis with a points-based system? No! You're just attracted to black chicks. A consequence of accumulated external stimuli that. You probably didn't even register as they registered with you. Did you program her to like me or not? I programmed her to be heterosexual, just like you were programmed to be heterosexual. Nobody programmed me to be straight. You decided to be straight? Please, of course you were programmed, by nature or nurture or both. And to be honest, Caleb, you're starting to annoy me now because this is your insecurity talking. This is not your intellect.
1: I like that film a lot. I'm really glad it found an audience too, because it it's a small film. It's not a film that can open on the strength of any of the stars or any of that. It actually had to find an audience. But the first thing I think about when you, when I hear the title is the sound. The sound designer came up with for the Vikander character's robot foot hitting the ground. Mm-hmm. Every step had an electronic hum and a lot of weight to it, and it was just a brilliant stroke of sound design. Yeah, and it's you know that times a hundred other details like it really give you a sense. And that's a very confining film; it all takes place in a yeah, very I think small the production space. design is a huge, Oh, huge, and huge sound benefit to that too, film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep,
2: that brings us to the number one. The top choice, as difficult as it is, you mentioned, Michael, that Anomalisa very well could be that number one, but you did pick another movie ahead of it. What was it? I went with
1: a less cinematically, you know, adventurous and, and you know, kind of bold pick, but I, I, there's something about the pure satisfaction of Spotlight, directed by Tom McCarthy, that I just couldn't, I couldn't uh, get, you know, I actually literally tried to physically kick it off the number one spot just to see how it would feel and look, <laughs> and it's like, there it goes, rip up again, and, and we talked about it in part one because it was your uh, number eight, mm-hmm. I believe, and... Uh, you know, it's a tale of investigative journalism and legacy media glory from the early 21st century, uh, which now seems like a long time ago. And I, I'd say it's uh, the best, certainly the best newspaper movie since All the President's Men. I think it's probably the last plausible great journalism movie, uh, at least as journalism as we know it. And I think Joel Cohen was the director who said the the real, the only real key to directing is t- it's called tone management. That's what a director does. And that, you know, McCarthy, you know, is the most self-effacing director I I can name in American movies right now. I mean, unlike Joel Cohen, whose work you truly notice visually. But Spotlight makes docudramas and procedurals of any type and any fact-based sort of true-life detective story, I guess you'd call it, look very very easy because everything works it's just every in terms of tone management every actor every performance is absolutely right and in fact of all people Sarah Silverman you know tweeted out you know and she does no connection to any of these people I, I think in professionally much uh, just said this is uh, this is it's a film you hardly notice how perfect it is because it's just that's just it just all clicks together and uh, performances like Liv Schreiber as the new editor Marty Baron who ends up being the sort of stealth hero We need to
9: focus on the institution, not the individual priests. Practice and policy. Show me the church manipulated the system so these guys wouldn't have to face charges. Show me they put those same priests back into parishes time and time again. Show me this was systemic, that it came from the top down.
1: Most performers never never would be encouraged by a director to kind of bring it so far down that they're not even acting much. And, uh, yeah, I, I love—and purely personal reasons, you know? I mean, I, I, I can't—I look at these journalists at that newspaper, the Boston Globe, getting that story. In that case, you know, this this egregious, massive cover-up by the Catholic Church about the sexual abuse perpetrated by so many, so many, so many clergy— it's it's hard for me, just as a working journalist that was, who's been fortunate to work at a lot of different newspapers, just to think, you know, if if we can't value that sort of pursuit in in journalism, then truly we don't deserve good newspapers. So, you know, in its in its own way, it's it's a very principled and rousing and kind of affirmative movie
3: about an industry that's. On the ropes, you know? yeah. I love it. Yeah, it yeah. sounds like it's getting the the newspaper bump from you too a little totally, bit, which, uh, totally. which I and gave it as well. I, I mean, that's I, one I, of the I, things I, that I, I can't. It's foolish to. It's foolish not to talk about that. And it you're... gets it so right, and and so that's that's why you want to honor it also. And it's a lament for a way of working and a place of working and uh, different tools for working right. for doing journalism with okay, that are fast disappearing. And
1: I mean. and it works. I've just talked to enough people who don't, don't have any connection to newspapers you know any, any kind of media that this film just simply plain out flat out works in the same way in a similar way anyway that All the President's Men worked right. for uh, another generation. Mm-hmm. I think there's actually aspects of Spotlight that are truer and dramatically more interesting than All the President's Men which is an irresistible film with huge stars at the center and you know it's a more formidable experience I guess All the President's Men it's just got there's a level of what would you say, very, very slick craft with all the presidents men because of the William Goldman script, which is just deadly in the sort of the wisecracks and and very shrewd about compressing a lot of different strands into into a manageable form. But Spotlight's different; it's much quieter; it's more of a serious true procedural about how it happened. And uh, uh, it held up. Uh, I, I hate to always say this, but it, it does tell you something. If a movie holds up, holds up a second time, tells you how it's made and tell you what it's saying. It's uh, Spotlight is my number one. That notion of not fully appreciating even how well
2: crafted it is, and I spoke about that in my number eight, trying to defend Tom McCarthy. Even with that. This is a movie that after I saw it, I think it immediately went as my number two movie of the year. Mm -hmm. And now I've seen more movies since Spotlight and seen some really good ones, obviously, that I've talked about. But it's just been slowly creeping down my list to the point where it ended up at number eight. And I wonder if because... I was seduced by some of these flashier movies, well, some I mean, of these bigger spectacles, like it's a little flashy, bit.
1: You know, it's it's yeah. you know, like say Mad Max: Fury Road is a film I, I like a lot. It's, it's for whatever reason it didn't crack my top ten. That's not flash, though. I mean, I mean, Mad Max: Fury Road is bigger and more interesting than just flash. It's yeah. like it's like seriously rigorous insane technique it's, it's, yeah, yeah yeah it's craft as yeah. well and and you know if yeah, if i had to name my favorite shot of the year it doesn't come from spotlight it comes from mad right. max which is the there's a great 15 16 second Shot of t- typical where the camera starts low and behind the vehicle, where the where the kettle drums are, you know, preparing the the, the hordes for the for the battle. Blah, 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 blah. And then the camera swings out front, and you get the first sight of the electric guitarist, ring, the, and the flames come out, and it's all done in one sort of probably digitally enhanced, but very complicated shot. And that's like pure cinema. And there's there's nothing like that in the Spotlight. I mean, there's right. no. It's just it's a different kind of craft
6: meat and potatoes. Kind of. It's a form and content yep. combining it, exactly. it, in, per, in perfect unison, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah, there you mm-hmm. go. Scott, your number one. Okay, uh, well, my number one has been pretty much a lock for the last year and a half, so it's good to finally get it out there, because it's been a while since I first saw it. What, it's uh, Birdman?
1: That came out a year and a half ago. <laughs>
6: uh, this would be uh, The Look of Silence by Joshua Oppenheimer. With this and Oppenheimer's the act of killing. Uh, we, we, we've we gotten two very different but complementary approaches to the Indonesian genocide uh, that still haunts the country. This follows Adi, who's confronting people who he is holding responsible for the death of his older brother during this period. And the thing that is frightening about this is that the people responsible hold power and hold influence over the country and, and still hold people in a state of fear. And I was just, again, in awe of this film, in awe of the confrontations that he has, the conversations that he has, the way he, he pushes his subjects who are threatening him in a very frightening way about, hey, this could happen again, guy. Keep pushing, <laughs> and this could happen again, and he keeps going. And uh, the courage of that just as an act of journalism that you are witnessing – it. Blew me away. That's why I, I,
1: I, I call that. I, this just missed my top 10. I, I, I said it was the highest possible form of gotcha journalism. You know, And, and, and it is. I think yeah. it's a better film, in fact, than The Look of Silence.
6: Yeah. Or you mean uh, The Act of Killing? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think they're both really great. And, and again, complimentary, very different formally, but very striking formally. This is not your grandfather's documentary filmmaking. This is real filmmaking. And absolutely. A pretty substantial uh, distance between one and the rest of the list for me. I think this is uh, an all-timer. Wow. You, you could also
3: say, you know, in, in terms of the filmmaking style, it's more cinematic than something like Spotlight. I mean, the cinematography. Oh, yeah. oh hell yeah. And, um, and the framing. And, and like you said, yeah, it's got which that snut off. Is, and...
6: Which is what is exciting me so much about documentaries. Right. Yeah. Period. Now, I think there's been a whole, there's a real revolution in the aesthetic of documentary filmmaking that I think is very exciting. And, the, the, and that these two films of Oppenheimer's uh, really uh, demonstrate. Yeah, he's at the forefront of that. Well, Adam, we
3: almost almost had the same number one which Mm -hmm. hasn't happened since the tree of life but that's where i am putting ex machina we saw it early on in the year as you mentioned i've revisited it since and enjoyed it even more the second time we've talked about the movie's virtues and certainly when i voted for various critics groups ex machina came up the most often i mean alex garland for the directing and the screenplay also oscar isaac and alicia vikander in the acting categories I included Jeff Barrow and Ben Salisbury for their eerily ambient score, which I think was so crucial, similar to the sound design, Michael, that you were talking about. So this number one slot, it could be a reflection that the movie's just the sum of those parts. But my real reason I'm putting this on the list is Oscar Isaac's random unexpected dance scene that comes (laughs) about midway through. It is a delight. I mean, it's just, this is a tricky sci-fi thriller, but that's the moment that most knocked me off my defenses. Uh, I think it was just, it was a sign for me that Garland, you know, for all his intelligence and seriousness, uh, and this movie is very smart and it's very intentional in what it wants to explore. He has clear control as a filmmaker, but he also seems, okay, this guy's willing to take unpredictable risks. So he, he's, he has like a pontificating playfulness, which you know isn't in every scene of Ex Machina, but it's surely in that one. So I really hope we're going to be able to look back and be able to say that this marked the birth of a, of a major filmmaker. If nothing else, he made the best film of 2015 for me hmm. yeah if it wasn't for alex garland and ex
2: machina the vote for most promising filmmaker for me would have been so easy it would have been Marielle heller for the diary of a teenage girl but alas ex machina was out there and i obviously love that movie almost as much as you do josh what movie do i love even more than ex machina
5: i'm, I guess. Guess. I'm, I, I'm so I excited guess. about this you know
2: it's coming i'm ready <laughs> and scott i don't know maybe you can talk about this a little bit on air i don't know how much you can defend me here because i know i have two people against me no i'm i'm, I'm with you no, I'm back. It's on bad. my number one, oh, one
1: no it's the big short
2: it is adam mckay's the big short oh, thank you geez. michael <laughs> really how do you not like
6: that film?
2: <laughs> which i have seen twice and loved even more the second time i started off this countdown by saying at the very beginning quoting ryan johnson one of our guest voicemailers that i wanted movies that surprised and delighted me No movie surprised and delighted me more than The Big Short. And it doesn't really even have anything to do with Adam McKay as a filmmaker. I know some people are thinking it's incredible that he made a quote unquote good movie or some kind of prestige movie. But for me, part of the surprise is simply that up to about two weeks before it came out, I didn't even know the movie was coming out. It really was not on my radar at all. Put it in because I was probably trying to avoid watching something like Son of Saul that would have been a lot more intense and ended up being blown away by it and unfortunately we did just talk about it two shows ago long discussion about it tried to fend off the evil Josh and his take (laughs) I don't have anything more to defend it with I want to hear from Michael hopefully I'll get some support from Scott but Because I prepared nothing, I'll go to the feedback well here. Jim Polini, Bethpage, New York, recently wrote in, Josh. He said, in response to Josh's setup for the review of the big short, Adam passionately and incisively argued in favor of the film's narrative focus, imaginative character portrayals, directorial flourishes, and disarmingly funny script. It was four minutes of fluid, well-honed film criticism, delivered with mic-dropping aplomb. It wasn't that good, but thank you, Jim. Josh's response, you don't give an actor like Christian Bale a glass eye. (laughs) That goes on the front of my T-shirt. What size shirts do you guys want? (laughs) Thank you, Jim, for that. I tried. I tried. Even if it wasn't half as good as Jim said, it might have been a pretty good defense. But I can't top the glass-eye criticism, even though I think Christian Bale's performance is actually my favorite supporting actor turn of the year. And I hated it for the first two minutes of that scene. Hated everything he was doing. By the end of it, by the end of the film, was really entranced by that character and the emotional depths of that character that are underneath all of those ticks, all of those little flourishes that are obscuring the wounds that are at the core of his story and are at the core of this entire story of the tanking of our economy in 2008 because of the fraudulence and corruption of the entire system. It's funny. Scott, you've used the term angry. It's an angry movie. That's true. And I like everything that it provoked in me.
1: Lawrence we have no confidence in your ability to identify macroeconomic trends
5: you flew here to tell me that why Anyone can see that there's a real estate bubble actually no one can see a bubble
9: that's what makes it a bubble that's dumb Lawrence it's always markers Mortgage fraud, quintupled since 2000, and the average take-home pay is flat,
5: but home prices are soaring. That means the homes are debt, not assets. So Mike Burry, a guy who gets his hair cut at supercuts and doesn't wear shoes, knows
2: more than Alan Greenspan and Hank Paulson? Yeah,
5: Dr. Mike Burry. Yes, he does.
1: Michael.
2: How wrong am I? You know
1: it us a good try. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it has
2: my favorite line of the year. Speaking of Oscar Isaac and Ex Machina, just don't effing dance. That's my line of the year from Brad Pitt.
1: <laughs> I honestly have to see. I have to give it another shot. I, I I wasn't particularly happy with the review I wrote on it, which was you know mixed. And I, for for whatever reasons, I I found myself a little bit intrigued, a little bit frustrated by the general comic tone of it, which never quite seemed purposeful or t- truly angry or uh, c- clear-eyed enough of what was going on. I-, I don't know. I'm also a financial idiot beyond the norm, so uh, struggling with some of the, even the comic attempts to kind of get us up to speed about, I also just find that it, it has a dumber sense of humor, frankly, a more obvious sense of humor than a lot of McKay's, you know, straight-up comedies. So, yeah, I I'd,
3: I'd argue with that. I mean, I think, you know, to point this as some sort of evolution of McKay, I mean, Teledega Nights* is incredible improvisational. They're the comedy. first Anchorman.
1: The first Anchorman. I just, I, I, you know, and that's just a very modest, unpretentious sort of like, you know, throwaway comedy. Fantastic too, but
3: I, completely different styles of yeah. comedy. So now I just do a more serious, serious subject matter. Here is what I do yeah. like. Here is yeah.
1: what I do like. I do like perfor- the things I like in *The Big Short*, at least the first time, and I haven't seen a second time. But I think like Steve Carell's performance is continuing evidence that he knows how to do a million different kinds of comedy and serio comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the performance and I guess the, the storyline among many going on that I did find myself w- always wanting to come back to. And... I, again, I, I, it's it's like a half-realized sort of experiment, I think. And it, clearly <laughs> it works like gangbusters for an awful lot of people, including yeah, like two me. of you. Yes. Yes. Because it's fully realized. All right, Scott, it, hit is, it. it is fully realized. <laughs> oh,
6: I, I've got a lot to say about this thing. Well, first of all, about Adam McKay, I think he is one of the few directors of comedy in Hollywood with any kind of visual Style whatsoever. I mean, you yeah, look at there's t- a lot of it in. You look at Knights or the other I'd guys. Agree. I mean, these are these are very exciting films visually. You know, on top of being very mm. funny films. But this, I think, is this is a film that we need <laughs> as a country. Um, and what it reminded me of, I, I was a fan of the book, the Michael Lewis book, and I, and I, I, it's also a subject of great fascination with me. I mean, The Wolf of Wall Street is a film I've probably seen about eight times. So you know, I'm fascinated by the by the crash. I think we need it as a nation to n- understand it better. What the film reminded me of was a film equivalent to The Giant Pool of Money. Did you ever hear Th- that? This American Life. This American Life. It was turned into a podcast by Adam Davidson called Planet Money. Yeah. And uh, I would highly recommend listening to it because it does exactly what The Big Short does, which is to take very difficult information about, about consolidated debt obligation and, and credit default swaps and all of these abstract Complex financial instruments and makes it as accessible as it possibly can. And as I think, I think The Big Short is also just miraculously funny. Yeah, uh, you I know, think that's it, the biggest thing. So, if it doesn't make you laugh, hook. you're going to be turned off. No, it's by just it, it. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's cracked me up. I didn't. Laugh. It's, it's a fu- yeah. it's a really funny movie. I, mean,
1: I laughed far more at Anomalisa. Seriously, I mean, like I far surprised. more.
6: I, I just I you know I I. I like the whole – the the Jenga scene didn't do anything for you. All, anything that he Ryan Gosling does. is very good. He's yeah. brilliant. Um, and, and I think it just – it leads you to a place of true outrage. And I think there's a little bit of a – I guess – I don't know if it's a twist or something. It's reality. So, so – uh, it, because it's not just necessarily about a bunch of guys who saw something that nobody else saw, which it is kind of about that. It is also about people who – who were working that system and probably did see what it was going and were riding it out without any consequences whatsoever. And that's what we saw play out. We saw a bunch of people gaming the system uh, of uh, putting together these you know mortgage bonds that were full of garbage and profiting immensely out of it and then never suffering any consequences to that. Whatsoever, when the when the bottom fell out, it's enraged. They destroyed. I agree. It's, it's they enraging. destroyed the country, and they got away with it, and they got their bonuses, and nobody got sent to jail in regulatory. Uh, and there's no. I mean, it really it's an out. It's an outrage, and I think I think it's it's a service that the Big Short provides to connect. You know, your an average American viewer to. Specifically, what that Ugh. where that I, w- I wish that film directed. did that. I don't think it does.
3: I it don't did think it did for it's me good. as well, Scott. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to overplay my response to it either. I don't really have you know any ire towards it as well. I, I agree. Scott, with what you're saying about its necessary nature, and and uh, am completely on board with the sardonic anger that I do think it expresses. I, I think I just wasn't as bowled over by the form, yeah. as, as I know others
6: have been, so it, it's no, just I mean, mostly it, the case you know, it's a, it's certainly drawn a uh, you know a, a positive response overall, but mixed to a lot of people. I like are, n- are not on board with it, but yeah. I, I think in the end, I think in the end, you know, it didn't make my top ten, uh, but I do I do really I've watched it a couple times and I do feel. Like it's a, a film of value.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I I do. I feel another
2: another viewing is in my future. I do. I do. I feel like my pick would have better been expressed by Selena Gomez or Margot <laughs> Robbie, but I had you instead, Scott. And you did a wonderful job articulating how Tobias I feel about the movie. <laughs> Why the big so, short? Yeah, I got a face for radio, be good, as they say. <laughs> you were a wonderful surrogate there. Those are our top five picks. That's it. The top ten countdown is over. Do you guys want to share any honorable mentions? We've mentioned about fifty of them. Some of the movies that were in our top fifteen or thirty that we were really weighing for this. Do you I mean, want to throw I, like, any just, out, Michael? Just
1: like Scott, I, I went to naturally to kind of a top thirty, and we've talked a lot of about a lot of them already. Like the Assassin, um, uh, Brooklyn, uh, Forty Five Years. These were all uh, the Look of Silence, uh, Mad Max, The Martian. We haven't talked about much, but that's that was on my runners-up yeah. up list. Sure. Uh, and I of, of all the um, now, again, of all the sort of franchise reboots and uh, sequels and such, I, I think Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation is, is certainly it's one good. of It's good. Yeah, and then the ones we haven't talked about, uh, you know, in in either of these shows, you know, uh, the documentaries, uh, Amy, uh, Cartel Land. I feel oh, very yeah. strongly about those. Best of Enemies, Bridge of Spies. Bridge you of know, Spies.
6: No, I can't believe like, Bridge of Spies. Bridge my of number spies. sixteen okay, just, at the moment. I
1: was yeah. just checking out. I was just checking out the new AMC theaters in the Loop at Block Thirty Seven. Uh, which are opening this week. And I wanted to look and in, in check out the auditoriums. They're all very sort of small, like 40, 45 seats. And uh, Bridge of Spies, 2 o'clock showing. You know, I walk in, I see the first five minutes of Bridge of Spies, which is not a dynamic opening. It is simply you're there with the Mark Rylance character in Brooklyn in the 57.
3: Oh, that foot and chase, it,
1: though. But this is even before that. Oh, and I okay. just thought, it thought every single design and camera movement and and, and performance nuance is absolutely right. And Spielberg has become a very stealthy, patient director. The older he got, you know, the less con- less and less concerned about grabbing you every second because he's got such such assured instincts dramatically. But he, I thought, you know, this this film really is something else. And I think in a weaker year, top ten,
6: just missed. It oh this yeah, year. I mean, it was it's, he's become almost like. Like, like the John Dar- Ford or like the, Well, he's almost been on like the Dardens lately for me, where it's like, oh, yeah, it's like Jan, another great Spielberg movie. <laughs> uh, just, but uh, I, but uh, I went through years and years yeah. with Spielberg where I didn't feel no, this that is, way. No, but this is confident. I mean, as you're right. I mean, Janusz Kaminski is just painting with light in this thing. Again, it could have been, probably should have been a top 10, 10 movie, and it's terrific. It's so like, what, else, of my, what else? Uh, oh, God. Uh, well, we've already talked about uh, Anomalies, Inside Out, Tangerine. We've talked about Clouds of Silmaria. Timbuktu is on my, uh, on my list, uh, which I think is... Scott's number one, number one, one, movie number of the one year. for Tony. right? Uh, Son of Saul, Duke of the Duke of Burgundy, which is a Golden Brick nominee, uh, is one of the most beautiful love stories of the year, uh, uh, as, is, as is in a way 45 years, which is on my list. Uh, Bridger Spies, the big short. Buzzard. Uh, I haven't
1: seen this. That's the one of those Golden Brick
6: nominees <laughs> I haven't seen. Buzzard's got probably about two or three of my favorite f- scenes of the year. Without a doubt. <laughs> Terror, which is a documentary, another documentary about the FBI's overzealous pursuit of terrorists within mm. our borders, shocking to see unfold. Not enough people have seen it. Mm. Democrats, another documentary about the, the formation or the drawing of a new constitution in Zimbabwe. You get a, almost like cartel land, which is another honorable mention, just like a drive-by, not drive, like a ride-along sort of look at the way... Yeah. I thought Cartellan
1: had like That was, that was such great narrative storytelling. It was a documentary. Yeah. It was, it was yeah. great. And
6: then, and then Sicario, which I think is a hmm. really... I hmm. think another great piece of filmmaking that, to me, is, is Silence of the Lambs. And I don't, I don't think people really... It's something I wrote about that not a lot of people recognize, so I guess it's my one... You know, somewhat original contribution to film criticism this year, but being about a woman in this case by uh, Emily Blunt, who is the hero of the movie, but is having to navigate this world of men in which she is marginalized. Hmm. And uh, I think that's a really substantial film. And again, this list, I talk, I always make fun of people who uh, talk about who complain about how arbitrary list making can be. And uh, this year, I got to be the one to complain about that (laughs) that because a lot of this stuff. Could have been on my list. Did very you see seventy
1: one, the Irish film?
6: Too? Yep, another. I really saw that good one. at Sundance. Yeah, 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 that
1: was that was that also made my. It's pretty great. Yeah. Very good. Uh, and uh, my two favorite comedies that we didn't mention. You talked about Trainwreck, Josh. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trainwreck and What We Do in the Shadows. Were, oh, that's, the, were probably the two funniest films
3: I saw. Yep, this year. that's probably in my top twenty. At 11, 12, and thirteen, I had films. Each of you, or at least one of you, mentioned Carol, Anomalisa, and Phoenix in Jackson Heights. There's that was maybe my, better that was on my
1: top three. Frederick
3: Wiseman documentaries, but I have to say, no, with you know, with all this refugee immigrant talk. Uh, this is so of the moment. The way it depicts this community of largely first-generation immigrants and just sees it as the root of democracy. Essentially, a couple more here. The Gift, written and directed by Joel yeah. Edgerton. Oh yeah, that oh, was good. Really, yeah, 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 uh, yeah, You know, yeah. takes a, takes a little turn there at the end. That kept it off my top ten. Oh boy, but, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah. really worth checking out. And he's going to be someone I know we're aware of him already. But as a writer director to watch, Crimson Peak. I really like that one. I'm sorry, Michael. Me too. I I (laughs) forgot to mention that. Ryan Johnson's got my back, so I'm going to go. All right.
2: right. Well, every movie that's in my top 25 as it stands right now could change tomorrow has been mentioned, whether it was by me in some capacity or it made your list or an honorable mention, whether it was Inside Out, Bridge of Spies, The Diary of a Teenage Girl, The Look of Silence, Phoenix in the mix as well. The one movie I'll reiterate because you just talked about it, Michael, a little bit, Amy. That's a film that really was a... Big contender for my top ten. Asif Kapadia, the director, who also made the Senna. Ayrton Senna documentary which called is, which Simply Senna. Too, yeah. That's a great one of my favorite films of the year. That movie came out, and just I think Matt Singer did really nail this movie. He had the best line about this movie, the summation, which was, "It's the scariest found footage horror movie of the year," <laughs> and it really is because that's how it's constructed, yeah. and that choice to show her life unfold, Amy Winehouse, show it unfold through. All this existing footage, so much of it documented by her and her friends. In some ways, it made me think of Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck, uh, another, another documentary one I really liked yep, this I year. Know. I think it's probably in my top thirty somewhere. Yep. Similarly, these people who were very destructive and and like to avoid the limelight in some ways, but also couldn't stop themselves from chronicling their own destruction. And the movie's fascinating. Didn't Highly recommend. You Amy a, Amy
6: Winehouse completely, totally. completely both completely. as a musician and as a human being. Yes, this completely this film well, completely I upended
2: my my I of think that's one was. of the real strengths of the movie is that there's a moment in the film where this is when she's really in her decline. She's basically a cultural joke. And I can't remember what it was, maybe the Grammys or something. And they're announcing the nominees. And I just I don't remember who the person was doing the announcing some comedian and behind him are some of the other Grammy nominees. I remember Dave Grohl laughing. He's the only one I can remember. And They make a crack about Amy Winehouse and how, you know, will she be sober enough to attend or something like that. And everyone chuckles and they cut to the Jay Leno jokes and the things like that. And it immediately makes you feel like you were part of that. You know, I laughed at some of those jokes. Mm -hmm. I didn't really have any strong feelings about Amy Winehouse, but I probably did chuckle once or twice and dismissed her just because of what I knew about her from the tabloid press be, and the also, movie does make you feel really bad about that. It does as it, and
1: it makes you, it makes you realize, you know, what was your attitude the first time you sort of were bopping along to the song Rehab, which yeah. you know was a huge hit obviously and it was sort of infectious and and it gives you the most miserable pit in your stomach watching it in this documentary just the fact that she had to live with that. Hit and that sort of musical defiance—it was just killing her, you know. Ugh, God, yeah. awful. No, as a parent, yeah. as a as a as a musical fan, as a jazz fan, it's very hard to watch that. Film. It'll make you appreciate her as a singular
2: artist and totally. someone who was a unique talent, which I didn't have that appreciation before. I had that for Kurt Cobain already, but I felt it even no, stronger I mean I, I, thought, I
6: thought it was almost kitsch, and because it maybe because of that album, that album mm-hmm. uh, of, of Amy Winehouse's was just—it was around for so long, and she was sort of. Touring on it and playing on it for so long, and I was thinking, this is what? Is she, what else does she have to offer? And I just didn't get the richness of that album and the personal nature of that album until seeing this movie. And yeah. sort of,
1: just sort of the best lyrics, you know, where you really get a chance to kind of live with those lyrics. The, her best lyrics uh, in the documentary, oh, you yeah. know, yeah. they're very good. Yeah. Anybody for Queen of uh, uh, Earth at all? Oh yeah, no, like Alex Ross Perth
2: No, not us. Oh no, all the way. Go Come on, it. top of no, the. Ah. I'm, I'm in on Elizabeth Moss and her performance, but that's
6: Queen of Earth. It. Was it up, Philip? Did that do it for you? Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, fan of that so, movie. Okay. Huge so should... fan of Elizabeth Moss. I think
3: if, um, you know, an, similar to that in a misuse, or maybe not. Taking the most advantage of an actress would be Jennifer Lawrence and Joy. I mean, I think of those two films oh, the same. Man, where man, it's it's man. just you've got all the talent there, and so you've much. got the possible part. <laughs> oh, and you've got Queen a of a Earth has got a lot more going on than Joy. And, and hold on, Can't Josh. Yeah, you to
1: you're gonna have to make time and I'm room not for the a little, two films. You'll have to run
3: a little correction this week about how wrong you are. About <laughs> Joy has a lot more problems than Queen of Earth. But okay. when you have talents like that and they're not brought to fruition, it's frustrating.
2: I could be wrong, but I think this might be one of the rare times that. We've done this again—the ninth time that we've come together for this roundtable, where there wasn't one movie, at least one movie, that made all four of our lists. Mad Max? Tangerine made three. Ooh, Mad Max uh, made run, three. Runner-up for me. Oh, Mad it Max. wasn't you. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I thought it was yours. So, interesting. You can. See the full tally over at our top five page at filmspotting.net. Those are our top five films of 2015, thus completing our two-part top ten films of the year. Countdown, please
3: send your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on film. At Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at our
2: website, filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. While you're there, please do take a moment to vote in the current film spotting poll. We are looking for your choice for the Golden Brick winner. And that vote does count, as we'll announce the final winner at our live show, January 9th at the main stage here in Chicago. Out in wide release, Concussion, starring Will Smith, Daddy's Home, Will Ferrell, and Mark Wahlberg in that comedy, and the aforementioned and much derided Joy, directed by David O. Russell, starring (laughs) Jennifer Lawrence, Bradley Cooper, and Robert De Niro. So frustrating. And apparently there is another Point Break movie coming out, because... The first Fast and Furious movie wasn't enough of a remake of Point Break. We're going to get a direct remake here. I don't know anything else about this upcoming film, Point Break, so we'll just move on to other films that are opening in limited release here in Chicago. The Hateful Eight, the 70mm Roadshow release, Playing at the Music Box, the Showplace Icon, and other theaters, including the one nearest to my house. How huh, about that? Really? Yeah. In actually, 70? Come in down, 70 come millimeter. A box That's what it says. lunch or something. Also on limited release, Carol, you heard it mentioned here, made three of our lists. Josh, you said it was your number 11, so you had to ruin it. It could have snuck in there. <laughs> we would have had one title, that Todd Haynes movie. Next week, we don't really know what we're going to do. We may give you A little Film Spotting fix. If you subscribe to the podcast, it might be a review of Carol.
3: Isn't it next week already? It It feels feels that way.
2: Yeah, it does indeed. We are recording our live show on January
3: 9th. That will be available the following Friday, which is January 15th. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dissot and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.com. More thank yous as well to you, Scott, and to you, Michael. This really is one of the highlights of the movie year for me, so it was a lot of fun. Are your top 10 lists going to be up, Michael, at chicagotribune.com slash movies? Yes. That's the best place to find
1: it? That's right. And, and if you can get through the Where's Waldo challenge of finding the, the right uh, story in the website. Uh, I, I heard
3: sometimes it. following you on Twitter is a good way to get to some of that. Yes, it can content.
1: be. Yes. At yeah. Phillips Tribune. Yes, Phillips Tribune on, on okay. the Twitter. Will
6: you have a list up somewhere, Scott? Um, I think you can just go to Village Voice, uh, Film Poll, and look me up. I, unfortunately, I don't. I don't uh, I'm a man with many outlets now, just not just the one. I love seeing your Twitter. Tweet that we were really your impetus for doing a top 10 list this year i was uh, <laughs> well it was indeed uh, this is again yeah this is a tradition i really look forward to every year great to have you both back for film spotting i'm josh larson i'm adam kempenar thanks for listening
3: this conversation can serve no
8: purpose anymore goodbye